Let's go on to Chuck's case. I saw a 69-year-old man, a retired actuarialist, who had smoked very briefly in college, but admitted to being surrounded by secondhand smoke at his job. He was in an office where many other individuals smoked before it was banned. He was reasonably well, still active, but developed severe back pain in June of 2007. At that point, he was living in Williamsburg, Virginia, and he had x-rays performed of his back, which showed numerous sclerotic densities. A PET-CT was done. It demonstrated extensive bony abnormalities, scattered lung disease, including tumors encasing his bronchi, as well as numerous spots in his liver. He had a CT-directed needle biopsy of the iliac bone showing non-small cell adenocarcinoma consistent with pulmonary origin. With the patient's pain, I started him on solendronate, and I called around to some people and asked how they would manage this. I considered the patient essentially a non-smoker. Non-smoker, yeah. And did you get an EGFR mutation or any other biomarkers? I did not. What would you be thinking about in this patient? The first thing I do an MRI of his head just to make sure you knew about the brain issue. You know, I think that one of the things that I don't think is entirely clear is what are the appropriate biomarkers that we should be using in clinical practice at this point? You could make the argument in this gentleman that given his never smoking status that you could consider an EGFR TKI in this patient and probably know if he has an EGFR mutation before you got the report back from wherever you would send it at this point because they respond relatively quickly. There is some emerging data that even in never smokers, that never smoking status enriches patients for activating EGFR mutations. We know that not all EGFR mutations are created equal, and so it's nice to know. His chance of having an EGFR mutation is in the range of 30, 35%, at least in North America at this time. And I think that there's emerging evidence that all never smokers are not the same, that never smokers with EGFR activating mutations are the patients that are really driving these dramatic survival benefits we see from EGFR TKIs. And if you look at the several trials that have identified patients based on a mutation, the response rate, depending on which study you look and depending on which agent you look at, is in the range of 60 to 80% or so as a single agent. You know, this is a pill in lung cancer having a you know, on average, 70% response rate. We don't see that in non-small cell lung cancer, but that's in the mutant population. The never smokers that are non-mutants or wild-type EGFR, I'm not convinced that they behave that differently from smokers at this point. There's not enough data to be conclusive about that, but I think in the never smoking population, what we're really talking about are EGFR activating mutant patients, and that's what we want to identify. You said that not all mutations are created equally. What's the difference? There are some that confer greater sensitivity. For instance, exon 19 deletion has a higher response rate in the literature compared to the exon 21 mutation. There are some resistance mutations that are there. Mutations in exon 20 seem to confer resistance. And so given the heterogeneity of the disease, I think that we're evolving to a point where we want to know these sorts of things. And I think it's important in trying to select which drug may be the best drug for your patient. And also in drug development, there may be newer agents that are more effective in certain mutations than other mutations. So we're talking now about first-line therapy, but just to clarify before we get back to that, does that mean in the non-mutated, patient with a non-mutated tumor, you don't use erlotinib or you just use it later? 
Well, I don't know that I know the answer to that, Neil, right now. You know, we have an ongoing trial in CLGB for the never or light smokers. And the nice thing about that trial, CLGB 30406, a mandatory requirement is that they have a tissue block for molecular study. So the target is 180 patients randomized to either erlotinib alone or erlotinib with chemotherapy. Of the 180 patients, you know, we expect to get about 50 to 60 patients who are EGFR mutants, and then the rest will be EGFR wild type. So we'll get a lot of information from that trial. I've seen some data from the Dana-Farber Passiani's group in their experience looking at the never smoker with a mutation and the never smoker without a mutation treated with an EGFR TKI, and their behavior is very different. I guess I'm just trying to clarify because, as you said, it is a pill without life-threatening toxicity. I mean, even in the cases that we look through to consider for today, there were people who were heavy smokers who had good responses to a TKI. Right. I mean, does that happen? Is it something that you see in your practice? Yes. Effective responses in spite of being a smoker or in the absence of a mutation? Yeah, I think we have to realize that the benefit, whether you define benefit on the basis of a response or progression-free survival or survival, in the pivotal trial BR21, in looking at just clinical characteristics, it was pretty broad-based benefit across all different groups. In fact, there's that famous slide of the male smoker with squamous cells still having a survival advantage for erlotinib versus placebo, doing nothing in that setting. So I think that there are patients that don't fit into what we would consider the perfect patient. Remember, the perfect patient, the Asian non-smoking female with adenocarcinoma, was largely defined on phase two data. And it was largely defined on response rates. And it was really, at the time, we were really enhancing for EGFR mutations, in which you see these very high response rates. So bottom line, if you saw this patient as a second opinion at that point, would you want to get some biomarkers done before you made a decision, or would you be okay with making a decision? I would be okay with making a decision. Actually, I would encourage this patient to go on to the CLGB trial, in which they get randomized to erlotinib or erlotinib with chemo. We would need tissue. I don't know what kind of biopsy you did, but in a few of these never smokers, they've come without adequate tissue. We've had to go back and biopsy and get more tissue. Patients don't seem to mind that, though. So the patient's not eligible or can't go on the study, then what? Did you tell me about his MRI? Of his brain? Yeah. It was negative. Ne- negative. Okay. I didn't tell you about it, okay. but it was okay. negative. Okay, so it was negative. So here's my dilemma in this sort of patient. You know, I'm convinced that EGFR TKIs are useful drugs in this population. This patient also, if I remember the history correctly, is a great patient for bevacizumab-based therapy. I think that the standard of care is really the bevacizumab approach. This is a patient who would have gone on 4599, who would have gotten your choice of chemo plus bevacizumab on that trial. We know that there's a survival advantage. His never smoking status also makes earlier use of erlotinib attractive to me. So what I've done typically in these sorts of patients that say they either didn't want to go on the trial or weren't eligible because they didn't have enough tissue or something, I've typically given them four cycles of chemo and BEV, continued the BEV, and I've integrated erlotinib along with the BEV as kind of, whether you call it second-line therapy, whether you call it maintenance therapy or sequential therapy or whatever you want to call it, that's what I've done. Because I like to make sure that in this population of never smokers that they get exposure to erlotinib at an earlier point than a later point. Likely chemo? 
Again, I had no, you know, I'm influenced by the pemetrexid story. So probably off of a clinical trial on this patient, it would be carbo, pemetrexid, bevacizumab for four cycles. Same exact situation, except it's squamous cell. I would not use Bev in this setting. I would not use pemetrexid in this setting. I would ask the pathologist if it really is squamous cell because never smokers, it's unusual. Only a minority of them. I mean, you can see squamous cell, but it is unusual. I wonder if this is a mixed tumor of some sort. But if you had squamous cell, obviously that's a red flag from the bevacizumab point of view. I would steer away from pemetrexid. I probably would use carbogem and consider cetuximab. What about erlotinib? And the never smoker, you know, again, I probably would follow the same paradigm. If it were a squamous cell, that would influence my choices about the type of chemotherapy and maybe the targeted agent. I'd obviously steer away from bevacizumab. I might pursue outside of a clinical trial the same kind of approach in this setting. In this case, that might be giving a defined number of cycles of chemo plus or minus cetuximab and then, again, maintenance or lotnib or something in that setting. So we're going to get back to this case, but I just want to track out the cetuximab story. Can you summarize what was presented at ASCO and what you think the clinical implications are? Yeah, in the plenary session at ASCO this year, there was the FLEX trial. About 1,100 patients that were screened for EGFR positivity by immunohistochemistry. The bar that they set was pretty low. You had to have one cell positive for EGFR. That eliminated about 10 to 15% of the patients in which they tested it. So it did enrich a little bit. There were no histologic restrictions. So about a third of the patients had squamous cell. They included PS2 patients. I think about 17% of the patients were PS2. It was a global trial and about 11% of the patients ended up having Asian ethnicity. The randomization was cisplatinum vinorelbine plus or minus cetuximab. The cetuximab was given weekly at standard doses. The primary endpoint was overall survival in the phase three trial. It met its primary endpoint in the entire intent to treat population. The median survival was increased by about roughly five weeks. The one-year survival by about 5% from 42% to 47% on the two arms. The hazard ratio in the entire population was 0.87. In the p-value, I think, was 0.04. So it was clearly a positive trial, but a trial that fell a little short for the benefit that we saw in the bevacizumab trial in terms of all those numbers, not quite as robust. It's very interesting that they did a planned analysis of the Caucasians that were on that trial. I mentioned that it was a global trial. It had about 11% Asians on it. Interestingly, when you looked at the Asians, the median survival of all Caucasian patients was 9.6 months. The median survival of the Asian patients was 19.5 months. When they looked at the Asian patients, they were predominantly non-smoking females with adenocarcinoma, and about 61% of them received an EGFR TKI. So you can see that that was a different population. If you take out the Asians and look at the impact of cetuximab in just the Caucasians, the hazard ratio improved from the 0.87 in the intent to treat in all patients to 0.805 in the Caucasians. Now, this was a trial the Caucasian population was 955 patients or something like that. So I would argue this is every bit as large as the ECOG 4599. It had very similar numbers in the populations that we treat, the Caucasian population. So this, to me, in that planned subset analysis, 
which I think is pretty robust given the number of patients, this kind of gets the potential benefit of cetuximab in the ballpark of the potential benefit of bevacizumab in this population. Obviously, there are fewer patient restrictions with cetuximab. Histology is not an issue. They included PS2 patients where ECOG 4599 didn't. They said no symptomatic brain mets, but they didn't mandate screening for brain mets. But I'm not sure why we should be concerned about using cetuximab in a patient with brain mets. So cost and reimbursement issues aside, just pure clinical balance or risk and benefits right now, do you think that cetuximab is something that should be presented to a patient off-study, for example, with squamous cell? Let's say that there are no reimbursement or cost issues right. associated with it. Yeah, I think so. I think it should be discussed with the patient at this point because I think we're in an era where we're moving beyond the platinum-based doublet scene. And I think that we have the validation that the VEGF and the EGFR pathways in non-small cell lung cancer are valid pathways and targets for novel therapeutics. First one was bevacizumab. Now we have a positive cetuximab trial. I think it should be discussed. Now, I don't know that it's for every patient. It is a drug that has pretty predictable toxicity, manageable toxicity, but again, it's not curative treatment. And some patients may look at the potential benefit, the nature of the toxicity, cost may come into it and those sorts of things and may choose not to pursue that route. But I think it's a reasonable approach to discuss with patients. You know, it's interesting as research emerges, it's interesting how often docs in practice might have more experience with an agent than investigators. We saw that with Bev and breast cancer. You all have been using it in colon cancer and the breast cancer docs hadn't used it at all. So they had a lot of experience. And I would say that probably you have a lot more experience with cetuximab from colon cancer than the lung cancer people. How do you think cetuximab would play out in the first-line setting with a lung cancer patient in terms of toxicity, Atif? I think it's going to play out extremely well, actually, because Avastin has certain issues in these patients with lung cancer, the anticoagulation, the hypertension, the squamous. But just in terms of the side effects and toxicity profile, for example, that a patient in lung cancer would face with cetuximab, you know, because, you know, we think more about the older patient, more with comorbidities, but yet it's more dermatologic. Yeah, I mean, it really is more dermatologic. If you use it weekly, that's another disadvantage for it. But I think it's a very short period of time if these patients are going to respond for four cycles. We started using it, and it is better tolerated than Avastin in these patients. In terms of quality of life? In terms of the hypertension, you don't have to follow the urine. You pre-medicate all of these patients anyway. We, you check their magnesium, it's not a big deal. I, mean, I don't think about side effects when I think about Bev. I do think about side effects when I think about cetuximab. Is that right? You know, it's actually the other way around in lung. We actually think of side effects in Avastin, you know, urine and hypertension. But that's not, the patient doesn't feel anything there. That's what I'm talking oh, I about, see. how they feel, quality of life. And my question oh, is, how often do you see a patient on cetuximab who's really miserable after, you know, a couple months? Yeah, is that, that uncommon, common? The problem is cetuximab, you always see more side effects, but I don't think they are as serious as the Avastin side effects, the hypertension. So in terms the of the, poten- the perception of the patient. Exactly. That's interesting. Well, yeah, I mean, I've kind of looked at it as that cetuximab really has a fairly predictable, mm-hmm. as long as you don't have a major hypersensitivity that's reaction, right. which is an 
an issue with us in North Carolina. <laughs> right. But as long as you don't have that, then it's pretty predictable toxicity. Yeah. Avastin is unpredictable, and the unpredictable toxicities can be catastrophic. If you have a GI perforation, a pulmonary hemorrhage, you know, it's hard to pick out the patients that are going to suffer those sorts of things. And obviously, they can be catastrophic. You don't tend to see catastrophic. You know, the other problem that comes in is that we don't really treat dermatologic toxicity very well. Mm-hmm. We don't have the knowledge of it. It makes us uncomfortable. Certainly in head and neck cancer, we use it quite a bit, and we know what the radiation therapy, and maybe peg-tubed or other, and you're closing fistula formation. So there's a sociological reason they could look good and get out. You know, a lot of these individuals, when they go on CT25, really are they're landlocked. They're in their home prison. And also the other aspect is continuing along, and while there be in North Carolina, New Jersey, or Florida, the issue of sunlight and reaction to sun is very difficult because the nails are starting to do more, or even sunscreen doesn't work. So I think one of the keys for the use of this drug is going to be not only patient education, but also nursing education. And in the nurses with their protocol, even more so than Avastin, they are the ones who are going to be the ones who are going to be very proactive in making sure that the patients are compliant in their supportive care issue of using this agent. Yeah, I mean, you know, we saw that my thinking is that if your drug has a certain toxicity that is unique, then it's best to kind of figure out how to manage that toxicity. You know, we're all used to managing neutropenia, nausea, vomiting. We're pretty good at diarrhea. We aren't that good at rash, but it's a relatively new toxicity. Genentech, OSI, and Roche put together a skin toxicity form for Lotnib, provided some paradigms for docs and nurses to follow. I mean, I haven't seen that with cetuximab yet, but again, I think Neil's point is correct. You guys have used it a lot longer than I have at this point, so you may have more knowledge of that, but I don't know. What about the issue of infusion reaction? We've been working with Rich Goldberg from your place right. for many years and he has a lot of concerns about it in that, you know, sort of oh, yeah. belt, so to speak. Yeah, you know, I was having a discussion with Phil Bonomi about cetuximab, and he said cetuximab's the most benign drug we give. Our infusion reaction is less than 1%. At our institution, it's around, major is around 20 to 25%. Christine Chung looked into this. is a very nice paper in the New England Journal looking at a biomarker for the risk of a hypersensitivity reaction. There is some data coming out at the AACR that suggests that this test, and I'm blanking on exactly what this test identifies, but if this test is negative, it's a very good negative predictive marker. If the test is positive, only about 30% of those patients have major hypersensitivity reactions. So we have still a little bit of work to do with regard to this test. It's a new test. I think it'll certainly help us in North Carolina help decide which patients we're going to treat or not. If I were Phil Bonomi, I probably wouldn't be ordering this test. Where exactly is the belt geographically, and what's the thinking about what's going on here? Well, it's not entirely clear. It's felt that it's due to some environmental exposure. Collier Smith, who is a physician working for Bristol Myers Squibb, when we first opened one of our lung cancer trials with cetuximab three, four years ago, I've known Collier for quite some time, and I was talking to him on the phone. He goes, Mark, I have a map of the United States, and every time we get a report of a major hypersensitivity reaction, I put a red pin. And my red pins start in Durham, North Carolina, (laughs) right there. They go over to Nashville. They go over to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and out to Oklahoma City. And it's that kind of belt across the state. I'm not quite sure if we understand what that is. The other interesting thing that I don't think we know, if you grew up in Boston and you moved to North Carolina, I mean, what's your risk? Is it the Boston risk or is it the North Carolina risk? Or how long does it take to develop that risk? I think there are many more unanswered questions than answered questions. Chuck? 
assuming that 30% or so of the patients were KRAS mutants, would you predict that they might not respond to cetuximab if they're KRAS mutated? We don't have that data, I don't think. Well, that's a great question. You know, I think sitting through the colorectal presentation at ASCO, it was a rather compelling, although retrospective, story about that. And I think that that really enriches your population for a drug that's going to be more beneficial and not helpful to a certain other population. In lung, I don't think that we can necessarily assume that what's true in colorectal cancer is true in lung cancer. I'm bound by confidentiality about the KRAS analysis of FLEX. I think we will see that this fall. They did have, of the 1,100 patients or so that were entered in the trial, they had somewhere in the mid-300s that could have KRAS done. So we will see that data, and I think we should not necessarily be making decisions on KRAS mutation in lung cancer until we see that data. I think we will, by Christmas, be making those decisions? I don't know. You sure? (laughs) (laughs) Come on. (laughs) I predict no. Yeah. Again, my only comment is that what's true in colorectal cancer may not be true in non-small cell lung cancer. Can you follow up with what happened with the patient, Chuck? Sure. After seeing him, we had a decision to make about how we were going to treat him, and I ended up throwing the kitchen sink, then the kitchen sink at him. I used bevacizumab, carboplatin, paclitaxel, and erlotinib based on old data showing that the subset of patients that did well with, at that point, ERISA with chemotherapy were the non-smokers. How did you time the four agents? I gave the bevacizumab once every three weeks, along with the chemotherapy. Of course, the allotinib. So you started your allotinib right up front? I did. But you were thinking maybe hold off a little bit on that? Yeah, but, you know, I think that you make a good point. In the tribute trial, which looked at the never-smokers, I mean, this was allotinib given concurrently on a continuous schedule with chemotherapy. And in the never smokers, it really made a big difference in their survival. So I think you can put together those pieces of data. I'm not familiar with any toxicity issues, although at face value, it would seem that that combination would go relatively smoothly. We have a lot of data with carbotaxol or lotinib. We have a lot of data with carbotaxol bevacizumab. We have a lot of data with bevacizumab or lotinib. So (laughs) A plus B, you know, all those sorts of things probably would go well. I probably would just delay till the fourth cycle, but I don't think either way is right or wrong. So how did the patient do? He did well initially. He had some improvement, some objective improvement at his interim restaging point. There was some shrinkage to the liver lesions, the lung lesions, the bone lesions basically remained stable. His pain improved. He never really had much of an elevation of a CEA level. I ended up giving him six full cycles. Any problems with either the bever or lotnib, rash, hypertension? Not initially. He did very well with the infusions, with the exception of an odd sort of flare reaction when he would get his infusions. He would have a severe pain in his back in particular, and he sometimes would be very uncomfortable almost driving in the infusion chair. What I ended up doing was telling him not to take the Tarceva a day or two before the infusion, and that may have helped a bit. What did you think was going on? That was a pretty unusual. It was, uh, have you seen it unusual. before? Not before and not since. I've never so seen a reaction like that. So he had severe writhing back pain while he was in the infusion room. That was correct. And it also would occur sort of late in the infusion He had a lot of back pain, and I thought at one point perhaps it was due to the disease in his back and just being in one position for a a number of hours that it was that simple. It just wasn't clear to me, so I was trying different maneuvers 
And, you know, stopping the Tarsiva may have helped. It may have just been a psychological benefit. Any thoughts about what was going on there with this pain he was having? You know, occasionally you have a patient. Was this during the Taxol infusion? Or which part of the infusion was this? I actually think it was during the Taxane infusion. Yeah, I've had a few patients on Docetaxel that have had this, like you described, just very uncomfortable writhing is a good explanation for it. You stop the docetaxel, maybe start it slower. And so I've seen that a couple of times, and this is why I was wondering if this might be a taxane-related thing. My experience has been that it happens early in the infusion, not kind of later in the infusion. So it's hard to know what's going on. It's hard to know also why avoiding erlotinib for a few days would make it better, but... That's the art of oncology. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't you bring us up to date, and then we're going to go on to Steve's case. Sure thing. So he completed the six cycles, and between his interim restaging and his post-chemotherapy staging, he basically had stable disease. I've been following him now for about six, eight months, following chemotherapy, administering the Avastin once every three weeks, sort of in a maintenance fashion, along with the Tarsiva on a daily basis. I've cut back the zolendronate to once every two months, and he appears to have stable disease. He's done reasonably well through the subsequent radiographic evaluations. The one comment I'm going to make that is somewhat problematic for us is that he's developed proteinuria. Mm-hmm. And the proteinuria is somewhat significant. He's losing between a gram and two and a half grams. I check 24-hour urine every cycle of the Avastin. And he's developed a little bit of peripheral edema. And I'm a bit concerned about this. He has some mild hypertension associated with it, which I'm treating. And I went so far as to send him to a nephrologist. The nephrologist was very reasonable. He said, look, the man has something incurable. And he didn't put his disease as the patient's biggest problem, the proteinuria. He said, if he's doing okay clinically, discontinue to treat him. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I thought it was a very reasonable concept. Yeah, I think that's very reasonable. I have, on some of these patients, you know, because Bev has such a long half-life, you know, it's really quoted as being 20 days, you know, you might wonder in a patient like this, rather than give it every three weeks, could you give it every six weeks or so? I have no evidence, no data to do that, but it may ameliorate the proteinuria a little bit. But again, I would agree with that, that if it's not a major issue from that. It's great that you had a nephrologist kind of weigh in on it. I probably would do the same thing. If it gets problematic, you'll have to stop the bevacizumab, but you got to do what you got to do. Steve, are you using Bev at 15 or 7.5? 15. Based on what's been seen with rash as a predictor response to variety agents, including TKIs, I keep asking people about hypertension and Bev. Right. For the first time at ASCO, we had a symposium and George Sledge brought up the question in breast cancer whether there might be a correlation of hypertension or response. Has that been looked at in lung? Not as much as it probably should have. I'm not aware of any data in lung unless I missed it. It's also been considered for some of the VEGF TKIs. Could hypertension be a biomarker with, say, sunitinib or some of the AZ drugs? And we're doing a couple of CLGB trials where we're trying to look at that a little bit to see if there's any correlation there. So it would be of interest if that were the case. 